Y'all ready? Everybody ready? So many, so many, so many damn books. Merry Christmas and happy holidays from so many damn books. I'm Christopher. <laughs> I'm Drew. And we have Marie Helene Bertino in the studio with us today. Um, you are the author of Safest Houses and the novel 2 a.m. at the Cat's Pajamas, a favorite here. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Merry yeah. Christmas, guys. Yeah, Merry uh, Christmas. Thank you. And happy holidays. And happy holidays to those. And happy new year. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's coming the up. The new year gets forgotten, but it's such a nice thing to wish someone because it's so important. How, how, how long are you allowed to say happy new year? <laughs> I, I remember in, uh, there was like a joke in Seinfeld about it yeah. where uh, Elaine comes in and says, you know, I got happy new year today. And it's in, <laughs> it's in, it's in February. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think at least until the summer. <laughs> hey, I haven't seen you. Happy New Year. Happy, did you have a nice New Year? <laughs> what are you doing next weekend for Memorial Day? <laughs> I think that works. Um, but yeah, it's a strange time to do this because we really shouldn't be buying things for ourselves. But maybe we did anyway because it's too hard to buy a bunch of books for other people and not buy one for yourself. So uh, uh, what'd you buy? Drew, um, what'd you buy? Two things. One, I subscribed to uh, the first serial box serial novel. Oh, um, they're they're treating it like a TV show. the The show slash book is called Book Burners, and the idea is that there's a writers' room. There's I think four or five novelists who are together. They put together the plot and the the season arc, and then they each go and write an episode or a couple of episodes. And I've listened to the first couple, and it's... Um, What's the plot of Book Burners? It's a New York cop who all of a sudden gets recruited to be a member of uh, the like Vatican secret demon police. <laughs> oh. oh one this, of, it's one um, of those stories. It's really cool. Um, Marie, what did, you, what did you buy? So the last book I bought for myself is actually a children's book. Trumpet of the Swan. Oh, Ooh. one of the best ever. Oh, you've read it. Okay. Oh, it's so good. This is what I hear. Oh, and it's incredibly heartbreaking. <laughs> oh, wonderful. That is a great quality in a children's book. They should all be heartbreaking. I, it was recommended to me by a friend, and I'm actually working on a semblance of a children's book, and they Ooh. recommended this one as... The, actually, my friend said, I enjoyed every single word of this book. And so I thought... Wow. And it's about a swan, right? A swan mm-hmm. who can't... He, th- he's born without his, his voice, his, his trumpeting. So he, uh, and he decides to go and see if he can't learn. And, go, and he goes on a big journey to New York City. Perfect. Uh, yeah, it's very good. It's going to make you want watercress sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> more than I already do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah more than the resting <laughs> amount that anyone always desires one. Um, Christopher, what did you buy? Well, I uh, took advantage of the Black Friday sale that Melville House did and purchased uh, How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive by Christopher Butcher or Boucher. I'm not sure. Um, but it's really exciting book about being a single dad, but your son is a 1971 Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> Beetle. 
<laughs> couldn't even get through that. It's a funny idea. <laughs> I imagine it's not going to be as funny as I think that is. But <laughs> no, almost, almost undoubtedly not. But it's one thing that I kind of like about it is um, it's actually based on a true manual called How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive. And oh. each chapter is the same chapter heading as as the um, the manual. So, That's Do you cool. have a VW? I, you? I don't. Uh, I've... He looks like somebody who has a VW, doesn't he? I don't know what that means. Like maybe like a like a nineteen sixty eight, sixty nine. Weird cars. <laughs> Sounds like a weird book. I'm excited though. That is really neat. What? I don't know. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah. Well, we're um, we're drinking hot buttered rum. It's my first time having a hot buttered rum Ditto. drink. It's um, very good. Yeah, I'm using. We used a uh, Kraken spiced rum, and uh, and white sugar lumps. In case you want to make it at home and drink along with us. Do you publish the recipe on we your do. website? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, you can go on so many damnbooks.com. You've got all of the author recipes on there. So um, many damn drinks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There <laughs> probably is too much damn drinking. <laughs> <laughs> too many damn drinks. So there's that so that's that. I would like to ask you about your book. Okay. Marie, um, it seems like it was. It's got so many voices, and it's, it's set. We should say, on Christmas Eve, Eve is when the book begins. That's right. Um, so you know, when you go out and get your copy after this interview, you can wait until the twenty third, if you can wait that long. I did that last year, and I I highly recommend it to everybody. And you read it where it's set too, which is Philadelphia. I did, uh, which if you can also do that, <laughs> I recommend. <laughs> That's the ideal reading experience. <laughs> Christmas Eve Eve in the city of Philadelphia. So are you from Philadelphia? I am. I and grew up in Northeast Philadelphia. And and did you write this book in Philadelphia or did you write it in, here in New York? I wrote it in New York. I've, I've heard this said before, and I'm curious if you agree, mm-hmm. that in order to write about a place that was important to you, it's hard to do it while you live there. That was definitely true for me. I feel... I never would have guessed I would have written anything set in Philadelphia. And so far, I haven't written anything that hasn't been set in Philadelphia. But I moved to New York 12 years ago. And when I did, I became homesick. And I found myself also in the position a lot where I was defending Philadelphia (laughs) against people who really didn't like it. And so I just... That hour and a half down the turnpike really gave me a physical and figurative perspective. And I could finally kind of see the city that I grew up in. And I found that I really loved a lot of it. And one of the things I like about Philly is kind of this magical melancholy that's in that city a lot. And That's a great way to put it. I find that to be true of Christmas and the holidays as well. There's this magical melancholy sense of loneliness as we were talking about before and and so I tried to infuse that in the book and hopefully I did there's something I grew up outside of Philly and it it had a um like a a darker magic to it not quite a negative connotation but something that just felt uh I don't know I guess more grown up in a way and I when I picked this book up largely at Christopher's insistence, actually, the epigram being that quote from David Lynch, mm-hmm. who is another person who has like a very complicated artistic relationship with the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, 
I really I kept thinking about that during the book and even in the moments of light and joy because it is it's such a joyful book mm-hmm. but I had these moments of like wow but like the darkness is right there mm-hmm. on the outside like it's dark at 4 30 it's that kind of uh-huh oh I'm so glad to hear you say that actually about the darkness being right there and it being dark at 4 30 and the like and to bring up David Lynch as well it's funny I was there a couple weeks ago and we were stopped at a red light and I looked over to my left and there was a David Lynch mural <laughs> that I had never noticed before. And I don't think if we hadn't stopped at a red light, I would have even known to look over. And I realized that there was a mural there because that is where he used to live across from a crematorium that is still there. So we saw the old, old, old timey crematorium sign, funeral pyre, what have you. And I realized, oh my God, right across the street, that's where he lived. And while he lived there, and at the time it was, he has said, a particularly violent neighborhood. And he would watch these bodies go in and out, dead bodies go in and out. And he was tremendously repelled by the violence and also tremendously inspired by it. And he found it to be a kind of portal to some kind of magic and creativity. And... That level of insight into Philadelphia, I had never read before, and it just named something that I had been thinking for years. And so David Lynch and and everything he has said about Philadelphia has been a true inspiration mm. and, a, and a very unexpected one. Yeah, it's, it's really cool, especially when you read this book and if you skip the epigram, which a lot of people do. And you're like, wait, David Lynch? What? Why? Why, why David Lynch? <laughs> what does he have to do with Philadelphia? But can I also say something about the word joy like you said Mm -hmm. i do think that there is joy in this book and i think that there is a very big adversity to having happiness in books you know every happy family is the same and every unhappy family is um different but happiness is very different than joy Mm -hmm. disagree with me freely if you like i would say that joy it's impossible to feel joyful without there also being a sense of, of deep sadness. And that's why joy is actually one of my favorite emotions to write. Because if you can get to a point where you can have the reader feel joy, then that means you've gone through normally some seriously depraved stuff first. And so actually the book that we might talk about later, A Little Life, one of the things I love about it is that there is joy in that book after some seriously yeah. messed up physical violence (laughs) (laughs) i i think that there's something about the um it's it's a it's a it's like catharsis in a way Mm -hmm. it's a cathartic release like a happy cathartic release like thank goodness the darkness is over and we've achieved something light now after the darkness has ended absolutely i think people confuse happiness and joy and happiness is only happiness but i think joy contains multitudes But I, I just don't think that you can... It's funny. I, I think that as a writer, I'm interested in all human capacity mm-hmm. of emotion. And I like people criticize the Victorians because they leave out sex. Mm-hmm. And yet I think right now there's a trend to just leave out all of the kind of upper notes of the keyboard, if you mm-hmm. will. All the sure. upper happiness and joy and... And, and sex, too. I mean, I think people leave sex out a lot. And I think it's not because it's impossible to do well. 
I think it's because it's really hard to do well. But that, that, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Right. Every year there's a bad sex list. <laughs> yeah. And I was really surprised <laughs> to actually see Lauren Groff's Fates and Furies on there. I found the, Oh, really? It I was thought, on there? Yeah. yeah. I, I thought those were well written. And I was surprised I think, to... I think if you don't agree with the metaphor, it is going to all fall flat. Yeah. Oh, I I didn't realize that Fates and Furies was on that list. Yeah. I, I saw something about Morrissey. Morrissey, Morrissey won. won. Oh, it's one oh, loss, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, and I remember rough. thinking, like, Marcy wrote a book? <laughs> that was like, <laughs> when did Marcy write a book? Um, I, I want to bring it back to, to 2 a.m. and oh, sure. talk to talk about uh, what it's about. Do you want to give your... I'm sure you're very practiced now. I, I sh- oh, gosh. I'm sure I should be. <laughs> and unfortunately, I'm, I'm quite not. So... 2 a.m. at the Cat's Pajamas takes place over the course of 24 hours on Christmas Eve Eve and mostly follows an about-to-turn 10-year-old little girl with a really foul mouth, chain-smoking little girl who really, really, really wants to be a jazz singer. And she's lost her mother. Her mother is dead, and her father is deeply troubled, so she's pretty much alone, except for, ostensibly, the city of Philadelphia. And so... The story follows her and a couple other notables, um, but then also the point of view begins to take a walk and goes into the minds of the passersby, and and then eventually Philadelphia has its say, literally. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's a... That is a nice, yeah, I thought you'd be practiced at it. It it came out really nice. Okay. (laughs) I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, And, you know, I'll I'll just add that you, there's there's a, um, her teacher, Madeline's, Madeline's teacher is, is another of the main voices. That's right. Serena Green. Serena. And it's, it's um, I always stump for listening to books. Um, this is another one that's a really good download if you are looking to spend a free download somewhere. Um, this one's good. I should do it. I can't work up the nerve to do it, but I should. I mean, there's a whole other world of listening to your own book right <laughs> to you, which I feel like that would s- seem really strange. <laughs> Um, why, yeah, why have you not, have you just wanted to stick away from if they, if she phrased something differently than you'd want to? Gosh, I really don't know why I haven't, I'm not sure if she was allowed to sing because I don't think they were able to get the music rights. Mm. And I feel like that would feel very strange to hear someone speaking the lyrics instead of singing them to me. Because when I read the book, I do sing. Mm -hmm. And so that alone I mean, let alone Philadelphia pronunciation, but I'm sure she does a great job. I've heard she does a very good job from Mm -hmm. many people, including yourself. And so I'm sure it's lovely, but it's just one of those weird author idiosyncrasies where Mm -hmm. you're just kind of like, I don't think I can do that right now. Maybe later. There are so many indelible images from this book. One that comes to mind is lighting the drum kit on fire for the night before that yeah. <laughs> um, that's right and it's some and i was curious if you said that the point of view takes a walk and i'm uh did you did the point of view come first or did you have images that you wanted to to link sure it was a very very long process and one that was marked by a lot of trial and error it's funny that drum kit being set on fire was in the very, 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 very first draft. (laughs) And so I've almost forgotten about it. When you mentioned it, I thought, oh, that's right. They set the drum kit on fire. Where the hell did I think of that? 
Because that is one thing, and I did talk to a lot of musicians as I wrote the book, but that is one thing that, one particular anecdote that they did not tell me that I actually just made up. <laughs> I think the writing of the book, well, it started honestly as a poetry cycle about jazz musicians and two particular kind of Gatsby-esque dancers um, who became Serena and Ben. Oh. And they were walking home. It was a it was a poetry cycle, I'm embarrassed to say. And they were walking home through Philadelphia and they came to this waterless fountain and they were being silly and singing and dancing. And it was very much inspired by a few nights that I myself had in Philly as, as a recent college grad, you know, in love with the city, in love with music, in love with life and everything. And they're dancing around this waterless fountain and this little girl comes out in this awful poem that I wrote. And she begins to have a Salinger-esque repartee with these jazz dancers. And it was very much, I mean, it was almost pathetically inspired by A Perfect Day for Banana Fish, the story by Mm -hmm. J.D. Salinger with the little girl in the the, uh, yellow bathing suit. And so when it kind of morphed into fiction, I thought, who is this little girl who would be bold enough to come outside of her apartment and talk to these eccentric people? And I realized it was really, really interested in her. And she obviously became Madeline Altamari. And I followed her, honestly. I I began to just follow her to see where she led. And I gave her my bowl haircut that I had when I was (laughs) a little kid. And much more bravery than I've ever had. And an enormous adult-sized talent. And I... And I just kind of waited to see what would happen. And so it got her into a lot of trouble. And, and then it eventually gets her out of her neighborhood. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting to hear you say the thing about Madeline having like a very adult grown up talent. And I'm curious about. It makes a lot of sense to me to hear you say that it started as a poetry cycle, mm-hmm. actually, because there there's a rhythm to it. And I was wondering how much music in general because jazz especially can go in so many different ways and there's a lot of uh there's a lot of expertise in this book on display in the drum in the jazz band at the um cat's pajamas as well as i would give anything to go see those guys (laughs) it sounds good (laughs) let alone like to have this little nine-year-old walk in i had to make sure that the that the lines and the syntax paid homage to a bit of rhythm, but not too much that it overthrew everything else. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, really, really difficult to write music. And I knew that I was taking on something that was really ill-advised to have <laughs> a band and a little girl singer and people having opinions about music, which it's all difficult to write. And I knew there were certain traps that I wanted to avoid sometimes that that noirish thing that happens um, that can almost feel beatnik Mm -hmm. in a way that happens when you try to write music on a page I knew I wanted to avoid that and I find that when something is character based it's it tends to succeed with more regularity so what would Madeline's practice be? I knew that she'd probably have a ritual, that she'd probably love to rehearse in a certain way. I knew that she probably would be a loner because she was so disciplined and dedicated to her craft. And honestly, I just 
lent her kind of my craft in writing and my opinions about writing when it came to her practice. Mm -hmm. So I had to build Madeline's practice. And then, you know, I had to listen to real jazz guys. And I lived in San Francisco for a little bit, and they have a great jazz station out there with a DJ whose name I am going to completely forget. Sonny, Sonny someone. And he, I listened to him rant and rave for about 20 minutes once while I lived out there about how women can't do the all-night hangs. And that's why you don't have many famous female jazz musicians. Mm. And, you know, hey, jazz has been known as a very male-dominated field. As a female fiction writer, I can relate to (laughs) that kind of thing. I, too, am in a male-dominated field. And so... I wasn't going to not listen to and memorize his cadence because I was too worried about him being a misogynist. That's for another day. I memorized his monologue. I wrote it down and then I gave it basically to Lorca. Uh And so when I was forming Lorca, I remembered guys like him and I gave him unpopular opinions because that's what a jazz guy would think. And Lorca is the owner of the Cat's Pajamas. Of the Cat's Pajamas. Was his name... A hat tip? Absolutely. Cool. <laughs> Absolutely. Very cool. So he's named after a very famous homosexual poet. <laughs> <laughs> what I was thinking when I was writing it and what my goals were, I, I remember them so clearly and I think that I met them. I was very interested in writing something that was self-contained and autonomous and gem-like. I wanted. I knew it would be short and I knew it would be weird. And I also knew that it would have a kind of old-fashioned tinge to it that would make it kind of out of fashion now. Mm-hmm. I knew it wasn't following any kind of current trend. I was aware of that, and I was fine with that. But I was trying to hold true to something, some other star I was following. And for the most part, I did the best I could. And so I can look at it now, and I read from it still. Um, not as much, thankfully, but... And I think, you know, this is good. I, I see a lot of authors, and you probably have as well, when they read, they make notes because they're fixing the, <laughs> the published book. Just in case. I have to say I'm so, and I'm a former editor, and I'm so hard on the line that I don't find too many things that I would change. There's one part in here, um, and I can't remember exactly where it is now, that I wished I had gone into a little more oh, I should have explored how she felt about that. I could have pushed through that a little bit more. But other than that, honestly, and with my collection too, I don't know. I, safe I, as houses. Safe as houses, For those yeah. playing along at home. For those playing, <laughs> right, <laughs> all of you. <laughs> who are drinking your hot buttered rubs yeah. at home and thinking and singing carols. <laughs> who knows? I hope we have fans like that. Definitely. <laughs> Speaking of stressful times. Yes. Yeah, speaking of stressful times. Speaking of um, stress. We turn our attentions now to one of the biggest, both literally and metaphorically, books of the year, Hanya Yanagihara's A Little Life. Mm. Mm. Which, uh, there's a, Murray, there's a long running joke of this podcast that <laughs> Drew wouldn't read. <laughs> Drew wouldn't read it. We don't, I don't know exactly Tell how it got started. It's, I mean, it does, it's really just that you, 
I read I it and then I just kept asking every single time we had an episode. It's really <laughs> like not. Like then guests started yeah, asking too. That's true. Um, we, both of our um, BuzzFeed people, uh, Isaac Fitzgerald and Saeed Jones, both recommended A Little Life when they came through. Oh, good. And I'm glad yelled you at that. me about it. Yep. Yelled at you because you hadn't read it yet? Yeah. Well, as they should, you should have read it. So before we go further. So have you read it? Yes. So this book, it's it's the biggest book in the way that it's almost 800 pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about four friends that meet in college and they go off into New York City. And it seems at the beginning like you're going to be following four friends moving through the city as they grow and laugh and have difficulties and et cetera, like many books that have come before it. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting sort of faint that Yanagahara pulls off from that into the life of one of the characters, Jude. And it becomes far more Jude-focused. And you find out why he's sort of the nexus of this group, why everyone sort of gathers around Mm -hmm. him, even though he's somewhat of a cipher. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you find out his background, and you do follow all four characters, but you start to see them all through the lens of Jude. Right. So that's my that's my capsule. That was good. Summary. That was very good. I'm curious, Marie, as to sure. yeah, you're the one you who brought like this what? book to us. I yeah. did. I was asked to t- which book did I want to discuss, and I, I did mention a little life. You know, I haven't had as powerful of a reading experience as that one in a very, very, very long time, mm. and. This book made me stop thinking like a writer and I was just into it, kind of addicted to it and just enjoying the reading process. You know, as we talked about, joy is kind of out of fashion. I think that enjoying reading is a little out of fashion too, sometimes for for good reason, I would say. Also, <laughs> sorry, am I allowed to just keep going? <laughs> no, yeah, 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 please other do. Thing, that is in, that I found to be incredibly admirable about this book is that it contains the ethnicities, the sexual um, proclivities it, that actually happen in real life. I mean, it represents what human beings are. It is hard. It is so difficult. I when I read it, I was like, this author actually understands human beings, mm. and I don't often think that either. And the last thing I'll say is that Jude is someone, he is the main character, and he is someone who is living with disability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exceedingly rare to have that represented in fiction. And it's a very sad thing that that's not represented more in fiction. Can you guys think of the last book you read where someone living with a disability was represented. I'll tell you what the last book you read. <laughs> it was Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Oh, was yeah. the last one. Yeah. That's a good one. That's I actually, read. yeah. I completely agree. I think that it's, I think that the disability on display in A Little Life is basically impossible to sum up. Um, and, and I think that what drew me to it, and my, my review that I have of this book that I wrote on Goodreads and I stick by is I can't recommend this book to anybody. (laughs) Um, But if you're drawn to it, you should read it and it will change you. 
Oh, that's that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Because it it is about abuse and it is about all the horrible things that could happen to you in in one life. Um but at at, at the same time I never felt like she was trying to use that to kind of elicit like a cheap emotion or something. It felt much more like she was trying to show what it's like when you can't mute the voice that says you're not worthy. But I guess I never saw it in the way that she presented it, which showed, you know, don't pay attention to that voice. Mm -hmm. It was almost like a therapy session each time I read the book where it's just like, you don't need to listen to the, to the voice that tells you that you're bad. Mm-hmm. There are other voices in your head to listen to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, something that was interesting that a lot of people in uh, recommending the book, but you, as much as you were encouraging me to read it, you weren't, all, you weren't necessarily recommending it in that mm-hmm. way. That, like a recommendation <laughs> implies like you will derive pleasure from this book. And I think this is a difficult book to do that with. Mm-hmm. But the thing that struck me because everybody prepared me for the violence and right. emotional, physical, and there are scenes that I was still not prepared for. The scenes that I was mentally prepared for as I started putting it together as I read the story. But the the thing that stuck with me the most about this book is actually the the positive aspects, the, the feelings mm-hmm. of, I think, considering what we were describing joy as earlier. Right, that catharsis. Yeah, that's the, the moments where they come together around Jude or the moments right. of happiness, even if those moments don't last, they felt so rich and so wonderful. It's funny. I want to talk about a couple of them, but I also, they were so earned and lovely that I, I don't, if somebody hasn't read the book yet. I know. There are I, certain things I want to talk about as well and they there, would ruin things. There is one that I'm going to... No, you know what? Go for it. Spoiler warning. Yeah, this is, a, you know, yeah, hit hit like four times on your 30 second thing um <laughs> says the engineer <laughs> <laughs> um but there's this there's the scene where um where jude is adopted yes oh right and it's so much joy in that moment because of so much has happened to him and you just want the best for him right that i and nothing rang false and i and i know I know what it's like to read a book that everyone loves and it's and it and you're not loving it. I know what that feels like. Absolutely. I was ready for that to yeah. be honest. And that's it's a really hard feeling. Here's the thing. I I really liked the book. I didn't disagree with a decent chunk of the things that were said in that review. Mm-hmm. Like there is I think that my one big problem with the book is that I think the the version of the book that is 1500 pages long that is all four of these guys going through and they all get equal attention and i mean the the idea of of melodrama uh-huh. which has a very negative connotation but i think there's something there's something this is like a, it's a it's using that term positively with this book because all of the emotions are just pulled up but that can be a lot to take over the course of 700 some odd pages. And my question would be, didn't she intend that? Right. Because this is a book about an obscene level of abuse. Right. And 
one thing I admired as a fellow writer is how that abuse took on a mythic quality because of its quantity. And so I trusted her enough because I, I did feel like I was in the hands of a very capable writer to think, okay, this, is, this has taken on a mythic level and this is why this is very, very deft. And I know that, that some people are, are not buying that, so to speak. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I think you just have to say, well, this is not my cup of tea. Right. And this is my cup of tea. This is not a book that I would normally be drawn to, honestly. I'm not drawn to like hyper-realism in many ways. But because I think that what she is doing, I do recognize it as way more difficult than it seems. You mentioned the misdirection of having it be about the four friends and then having that pivot. Mm -hmm. And maybe it happened a little too late for you. Um, It's funny. I was just, I just saw the movie Hitchcock Truffaut Mm -hmm. and I'm an enormous fan of both of those filmmakers. And one thing I love about Hitchcock is how in movies like Psycho and The Birds, you think you're watching one movie and then it pivots mm-hmm. and you're really watching. It a is very movie. cinematic what she did. It, it felt more cinematic than, than literary. Well, I think that things that work in cinema can sometimes translate really well onto the page and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And I think as writers, we do well to learn from all of the genres. But I, I learned from, I learned a lot from Hitchcock actually. And one of the the things is that kind of lovely misdirection. And of course it happens in stories and novels as well. But Hitchcock is is kind of always on my brain. And I liked it because of that. Although I had already read an article where they said that that happened. So unfortunately I was one of the ones who, who knew that it was going to focus on Jude. Me too. So maybe the whole time I was like, when are we going to get to Jude? What mm-hmm. are we gonna? But what did surprise me was that it's not just about Jude. It's also about Willem. And mm-hmm. the relationship. So it, it actually goes from four to two right. with one being a little more Right. Yeah. I think that arresting it's, as it it, were. it's definitely reductive to kind of say that it goes just to Jude, which isn't really how it goes. It's just how Jude becomes the nexus point. He, sure. Yeah. If, if the four of them are out of focus, uh, he is the one who comes the most into focus, I think, over the course of... And like they all of a sudden, they're not in a straight line. They're staggered. One of the pure pleasures of this book is um, what I have called to others uh, her apartment porn, um, <laughs> where she just like lavishly describes for like pages God, these the Green Street apartment, the gorgeous apartments oh. that they live in, and there and even the Lispinard one, which she describes in great detail. I'm like, and she's calling it like dingy and disgusting, and I'm just right. like, that sounds like. It's got to be like <laughs> ceilings, though. Yeah. She gets away with it, too, because Malcolm, as an architect, yes. right. she opens up the opportunity for a couple pages of him just being like, so I'm going to put this here <laughs> yeah. and do this thing. But um, it's also justified on a character level as well. I believe the Lisbonard Street apartment is where Jude, that is his literal first home. Mm-hmm. And so it would stand to reason that he would be very aware of every single molecule of that place. And if you recall... And this is a lovely way that she balances all of the abuse with, by ending on a moment of joy out of chronological order. The very, 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 very last moment is out of chronological order. I don't think that ruins anything to say that. But it ends with 
you know, something mm-hmm. having to do with the Lis Bernard Street place, which is the first place where he really felt like he had a door that locked and he was safe. Mm-hmm. And so I also, the structure of the novel is, 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 I think, quite interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to this book, and I'm going to say the same thing. <laughs> it, you know, if you if you find by us talking about this that you want to read it, drawn to it, yeah. then you should. And if you're like, I'm not sure, then just maybe save yourself and read something else wonderful because there's a million wonderful books. It's exactly, one, yeah. I, don't waste your time. I mean, I don't understand why you would waste page time destroying it. That that tends to baffle me when you could just read something that you do like and talk about that it evokes something in people that is either it's like the city of philadelphia it (laughs) seems like you either hate it or love it and i just strong strong feelings i've asked you this on twitter and i'm going to ask you again for our listeners okay if we wanted to go listen to the band in 2am at the cat's pajamas do you have anything that do you have any uh, a recommendation. Absolutely. Buena Vista Social Club yeah. is what the Cubanistas were based on. That feels, oh man, I was listening to them when I read the book anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Well, they actually sing that um, Candela is, is one of their songs. And yeah. I actually made a list on Spotify under my full name called, I think it's Music from the Cat's Pajamas, and it has all of the songs that are either mentioned or were sung explicitly by one of the characters. Oh, cool. Well, we'll um, you know, you can find that on your own uh, if you're playing along, or you can go to so many damn books.com and we're going to link to that on the show episode page. Oh, yeah. cool. Cool. I also made a, cri- actually, I made a holiday mix as well. I'm oh, say, no. yeah, with all, uh, with a bunch of awesome Donny Hathaway hits, and we'll you can listen to it while you're drinking your hot buttered rum, <laughs> wrapping your presents. Which is delicious, by the way. I don't know what the butter f- is for, or but it makes it a full body. Like I think that if <laughs> it's you're just yeah. for more butter, yeah, if you if you <laughs> you need more butter in your diet. <laughs> Christopher, Christopher, what do you recommend? Uh, I recommend a book that I think was unfairly ignored. Um, and it's if if you have seen the movie Room and you loved it, and then you went and read the book and you're like, ah, oh, this is so good. All I want is more of this. What you need to read now is called The Bear by Claire Cameron. And it's um, it sort of ratchets up the idea of uh, it's a different idea than room, but it's it is an, it's a young 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 um, uh, narrator. She uh, the girl is five, and she has a two year old uh, brother who she's with, and they uh, go camping with their parents, and their parents get eaten by a bear, and it's the two or three days that they're alone in the forest trying to stay alive. Oh my gosh. It's like Hatchet meets Room. Yeah, it's Hatchet meets Room. And it's it, it's honestly incredible, if only for the very final chapter, which is might even be like an epilogue. But it's that that whole thing is it's an incredible um, experience. The bear. Wow. Marie. Oh, 
Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you should you should probably All right. go first. Okay, you go, you go um, next. Gentlemen Screw. first, as they say. Yeah, <laughs> the lesser known version. <laughs> <of that>. <laughs> <laughs> this is the secondary version. Um, I'm going to recommend a, a poetry-ish collection. Saul Williams, who I know primarily as a musician, um, but he's also a poet. He made the film Slam many years ago. It was recently on Broadway in that short-lived Tupac musical. Um, he has a new collection out called U.S. and then in parentheses A. And he was commissioned to write a series of poems and essays about uh, he moved to Paris shortly after Obama was elected. And he was commissioned to write these essays about like, okay, what is it like being an American expat and looking from the outside in at this country? Um, and it's it's just a really smart series of poems. There's also at the back end uh, sketches from a screenplay that he has put aside for the moment about the life of Miles Davis, specifically uh, his relationship with uh, Juliet. I'm forgetting her last name, but they meet in Paris and they fall in love and they have this wonderful relationship and it falls apart when they come back to the States because it was a mixed race relationship. Mm. Um, right. But it's just, I mean, the guy is, he's a brilliant poet. He's a brilliant writer. Some of the poems are being turned into songs for his next record. Like the first single off of his next record, Horn of the Clock Bike, is a poem. In, and I looked at it, I was like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love Drew noises. I like those noises. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Anyway, that's it for me. Okay, lovely. Would you mind if I gave you a suite of recommendations? Don't mind at all. We encourage it. Yeah. Okay, great. If I were to recommend to you a nonfiction book, it would be an autobiography called Raise Up Off Me by Hampton Hawes. Okay. He is a brilliant jazz musician, and I think that book could actually be a tremendous collection of short stories, but it all happens to be true. Check it out. It's amazing. Fiction book, I would recommend Panic in a Suitcase by Yelena mm. Oktiraskaya. Oh, that's sitting on my stack. Yeah, very it is. It did not that. get enough attention. Uh-huh. I thought it was really, really wonderful from my cohort, so to speak, of books that were published in 2014. Also, always, always, if you're looking for short stories, Deb Olin Unferth, Minor Robberies. She's a master. If you're looking for to go to see a play... I would say to go and see a play called John by Annie Baker. That is, oh, Drew is having a oh, uh, yes. <laughs> some kind of spasm that I hope is good. Other than Hamilton, it's my favorite thing that I saw in 2014. Oh, excellent. 15, 2015. It's 2015. Too. It's 20, oh, man. It, it threw me so back. Yes. Yeah, you, you literally went back you, in I, time I, of year. You, you just did a back bend. It was just thrilling yeah um she and i actually went to school together but this was the first time i had seen and i don't know her but it was the first time i had gone to to hear one of her plays amazing if i were to recommend a movie one that i just saw that i totally loved uh, agnes varda uh chloe from five to seven Hmm. have you guys seen that no i've never even heard of it really really brilliant wonderful um black and white movie so did I do nonfiction play? Did I skip anything? TV show? 
yes, and or record. You. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, song maybe. Fargo. Oh, TV the television show, show. I would recommend Fargo, the second season. I want to meet whoever is writing that show <laughs> and shake his, her hand. <laughs> her hand. His, her hand. <laughs> or their hands. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> I, it's totally gripping. Oh, I'd like to recommend an apple juice, and that would be <laughs> Martinelli's <laughs> all day long. Have you have you um, seen Master <laughs> of None yet? As long as we're talking about. Oh, I have. Yes, at he likes ver- Martinelli's the, too. Yeah, at the very beginning of that show, he made <laughs> yes. me want some Martinelli's. Oh yes, Martinelli's. Mar- Sometimes um, when I teach, I have my students write a love letter to something or someone that doesn't normally have a love letter written to it or them or her. And my example is what I wrote when I asked myself the same thing, and it was a love letter to Martinelli's apple juice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to write a love letter to giving presents. Um, yes. Hey, we all have presents. Well. And I'm gonna. Here's your present for the. Yeah. That's so nice. We're opening on the. Do you open presents on Christmas Eve or do you? Christmas Christmas, Day. Christmas Christmas Day. Do you yeah. do one present on Christmas Eve or anything? I think I was we wanted that because yeah. my friends got to. Yeah. My parents were like, no. Mm. <laughs> I can't believe no. you guys got me a present. Oh well, thanks for coming by. We really appreciate it. And all it. I got you was this lousy visit. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Oh my gosh. Shamboard? <laughs> yeah. <Whoa. laughs> this is awesome. Oh man. <laughs> Best American mystery stories of the 19th century. Uh, I'm, I'm still yeah. getting through George writing. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and Drew got me the shining. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are going to have a I wrote a little note holiday. inside that said, from my favorite holiday to yours. <laughs> You're a Halloween guy? Uh, I am very much so. I love that. Yeah, I love Halloween. You also gave me a bunch of filled notes, notebooks, which is good because I keep running out of space in mine. Oh, I feel like I'm really part of a special family moment. Uh, Well, a very Merry Christmas and a happy holidays to everyone. And thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, guys. We really appreciate it. Merry Christmas. This is coming from Drew's tie. I was doing this at work today, and everybody was like, you gotta stop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it doesn't stop. I can't stop. It, it doesn't happens. stop. No. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>